Okay, as we're continuing our series on the pastoral epistles, Paul's pastoral epistles, entrusted with the gospel, I invite you to turn with me actually to two different passages. I would like for you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews 9. That will be our scripture reading today. I know it's a longer one. It's one of my favorite parts of the Bible. And if some of you are like, wait a second, you said that about and then listed like several dozen other uh, passages. Uh, that's also true. But really, this is Hebrews 8 and 9. Um, and actually, the book of Hebrews is perhaps my favorite book of the New Testament. Um, Hebrews 8 and 9. And then we will go to our uh, assigned passage for today, which is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And, and let me give the disclaimer here at the beginning. Uh, as the opener, we, would, we were intentionally uh, intending to look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8 this morning, but there was a lot there, and, um, and I'm going to actually spread this out over two teachings. So today, we're actually going to focus on two verses from that passage, verses 5 and 6, um, but I thought it might be helpful for us to read a much larger passage that goes, I think, in greater depth to what Paul is talking about in those two verses. So let's begin with Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9. And again, I know it's a long reading, but, but, bear, but bear with me as we read God's word together. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in that true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and one, uh, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. 
For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which uh, were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, thus having, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the 
copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And now, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. God, having heard your word, we pray now that as we reflect on what was read and we take the next few moments to understand your scripture, that you would speak to us through it, and that, as the psalmist says, the meditation, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. And so we are looking at those two verses that were in the middle of that First Timothy passage. And I, I could just read those one more time, beginning in verse 5. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There's a lot in the rest of that passage that uh, we could look into. One about how to pray when we're praying in public. How to pray for kings and those who are in authority in high positions over us. That the Lord says it is good. There are some questions related to 
God desiring all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And how does that intersect with what we just, what Paul just said about prayer, and especially prayer for those who are um, in civil authority over us? Lord willing, next week we're going to look at some of those. But today I want us to look at one theme that we read there in those middle two verses, verses five and six, and that is Jesus Christ, the mediator. The one and only mediator. If you would like to follow along in your handouts, there's some places you could take some notes. I would like for us to go through uh, this teaching this morning by answering several questions. Last night, Emmy, Emmy usually makes a practice of asking, what are we singing tomorrow? And so I tell her what we're singing. And then she's like, and what are you, what are you teaching about tomorrow? And I said, oh, I'm teaching about... Uh, Christ being the mediator and she goes what is a mediator and I go come tomorrow and find out because that's the first that's the very first question we've seen we we, we encountered this term a couple of times in both of our readings in the Hebrews passage a couple of times and then also in this passage here what is a mediator well I think most of us would kind of understand this a mediator is a go-between a mediator is one who stands between two or more parties but typically two parties or groups that are in a dispute, that are uh, at, a, there's a discrepancy, there's a, there's a conflict between these two groups, there's a disagreement, and the mediator comes between these two and seeks to reconcile them together, to fix whatever it is that's creating this division between these two individuals or two groups. Now, a mediator is a very uh, key concept through all of the scriptures. Indeed, you could think of a couple of examples of mediation taking place. I think of um, Abraham when the Lord is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and, uh, and Lot is there. And you remember this interchange like Abraham kind of intercedes between Lot who's in Sodom and Gomorrah and then and then the Lord here, and he kind of gives those series of questions. You remember this, right? He's, what if there's, what if there's 50 righteous people there? If there's, the Lord says, if there's 50 righteous people, I, I won't destroy this. Okay, well, what if there's 45? If there's 45, I won't destroy What if there's 40? And what if there's 30? And he negotiates down to, I think it's like five. What if there's five righteous people? And the Lord says, if there's five, I won't. The point is, is there's no righteous people there, Abraham. <laughs> but Abraham is there acting as a, a mediator. Similarly, Moses is another example of a, of a mediator. In Exodus chapter 20, we had just finished our series on the Ten Commandments. The Lord giving the Ten Commandments as the moral foundation for this covenant that he was making with Israel. And at the end of that, in, in Exodus chapter 20, as the Lord has told Moses to now go intercede and you know, mediate with the people, invite the people up onto the mountain. The people are like, no way, Jose. When they, the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain was smoking, they were saying, no, 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 you, you speak to us. We will listen, but don't let God speak to us. Okay? So this was a, Moses is a, a mediator between God and man. There are other important mediators in the Old Testament, and there's a couple of mediator offices in the Old Testament. Prophets were mediators. They were the ones who would speak the words of the Lord to the people. 
and sometimes would intercede for the people to the Lord. Moses was one. Priests, the priestly system that we saw in Leviticus is uh, one of the mediatorial offices. The priest, as we read in our passage, goes in on behalf of all of the people to come into God's presence on behalf of all the people. And indeed, I, I should have brought the picture of this, but uh, many of you have seen, maybe you've seen this in your study Bible. If you have the ESV study Bible, you could see a description. You could see a, a, a visual depiction of the garments that the priest would wear. They had to wear a, you know, their, their head covering. They had a gold band that said holy to the Lord. And then they had stones on their shoulders. They had this ephod that they wore over and a breastplate. And the breastplate had uh, rows of uh, 12 stones each one of those stones representing and said, saying on it the tribes of Israel and that the tribes of Israel were written six on one shoulder, six on the other. When, that was to give you a picture that when the high priest goes into the God's presence, he is representing all of Israel. He's the, the mediator. The priest is a mediator. And even kings were mediators between God and people. So that's what a mediator is. It's a go-between. It's somebody who uh, stands between one and another. And it's a very important, very important concept in the Bible and a very important concept to the gospel. So that's the first question. Here's the second question. What are the parties that need mediation? The Apostle Paul here is talking about a mediator, and it says in verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. There's your answer. God and men. Which is a different class of mediation than the mediation that would take place between man and man. Or human and human. Or woman and woman. Or woman and man. Or on the human plane. It's an entirely different category of mediation that would be necessary when the parties of the mediation are mankind and the sovereign creator of the world. Why is mediation necessary? Genesis 1 and 2 speak about the creation of the world, God creating the world and then creating man as the pinnacle of that creation. And he creates man in his image and his likeness. And man was in fellowship with God in the garden. Did Adam need a mediator? No. No mediator was necessary for Adam when he was in the garden. He was made in God's image. Before Adam had sinned, no satisfaction for sins was necessary, and there was no need for an inter intercessor between man and God's holy presence. However, in chapter 3 of Genesis, all that changes with the fall. The condition of man in his state of sin is such uh, that we now need a mediator between us and man. And it is in such a state that man doesn't really even want reconciliation with God. Several scripture passages speak of uh, this mediation. Ephesians chapter 2 when it speaks about us in our state of sin, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin in which we walked, 
and we lived out the passions of our flesh and that it says we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind nobody is exempt that's Ephesians 2 Romans 5:10 says that before we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ it says that we were enemies enemies of God Indeed, Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he speaks about the heartache that he feels for those lost who were, as he calls them, who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He describes what the enemy of God is like. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. So their appetites, their pleasures become the deity that they serve. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Humanity in Adam was originally created by God in goodness. But all of mankind is now lost. We've lost that original righteousness in Adam. We're so corrupted by our rebellion against God that we have no resources in ourselves to take even the least step toward God. Nor do we have the will to do so. It's, it's actually contrary to our very nature in Adam. We're blind in sin, we're dead in sin, and the salvation of sinners requires an ordinary, extraordinary, excuse me, an extraordinary act of mediation. So who initiates the mediation? Here's our third question. Well, given what we just read and heard about the state of man, the state of human beings in our fallen nature, it's not us. We don't initiate the mediation between us and God. What a great picture this is. It's God who initiates the mediation between himself and his people who have made themselves enemies. They're still in a state of enemy. We don't say, Lord, we, we're waving our flag. Can we, can we come to a truce? Can we have a peace agreement? And then maybe you can come and initiate a, a mediation with us. No, we're active state of rebellion. And in that active state of rebellion, the Lord initiates a mediator and mediation. We all, in our sin nature, we all have to have outside help in order to be rightly related to God. The stunning point is not only that we as rebels or sinners need mediation with God, that's actually kind of obvious. That's in Paul's argument here, that's kind of assumed. The stunning point is not that we need mediation, but that God himself provides it. That God himself initiates it. And he's entirely blameless in this dispute. The fault of this conflict relies, uh, lies squarely on us. 
So the truly stunning thing of this idea about mediation between God and man is that God is the only one who desires it. God initiates it. And then he has to create in us the desire to seek reconciliation with him. So that's number three. Here's the, uh, or put it this way, here's a quote from um, William Perkins. And I think this actually goes to the next point. I got that in the wrong place. Let's go to number five. Who is the mediator? Verse five, there is one mediator between God and man. And here's the answer to that. The man, Jesus Christ. Okay, this is kind of like the obvious answer here. Like the Sunday school lesson where they're telling them about the story of somebody who's you know, saves up nuts for the winter or something like that. Who am I talking about? And the kid goes, I know it sounds like a squirrel, but it's probably Jesus. The answer is Jesus. But more than that, it's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. There's one mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man. And this was a major point during the time of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church up to that time in the 15th century had other mediators between God and men. The, the Catholic faithful at that time were encouraged to make prayers to various saints or other Christians who may have been glorified or in, in particular Mary, that you know that even today, Mary is, uh, is referred to as a mediator, according to official Catholic teaching. There are other mediators, even today. But this was a big issue during the Reformation. Reformers would have none of that. Now, I know there's, there's Catholic apologists that would say, well, there's one mediator, that's Jesus Christ, but there are other mediators that can mediate us to Jesus, and so Jesus is the one real mediator, but what they're basically acknowledging is that there are other mediators that we can have between us and Jesus. The Reformers would say, no, we don't have any of that. We need not come before God through any but Jesus alone. Only Christ can save. And this was one of the, the five solas of the Reformation. There was sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our source of authority. There's sola gratia, which is we're saved by grace alone. Sola fide, which is by faith alone. And the kind of the capstone to all of them. Soli deo gloria. We are to the, all of this was to the glory of God alone. But one of them, solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone is the sole mediator between God and man. And so that gets us to that quote from William Perkins. Christ stands alone in the work of redemption. And I love this, without colleague or partner, without deputy or substitute. So there's one mediator between God and us, and therefore there is only one way of salvation. Now this was a really... Uh, and, and I remember when I was in college, this has now been like almost 30 years ago now, 
that this was quite a, a hotly debated things, even in Christian circles. And, and this was the debate. What about other religions? What about people in other religions who sincerely follow those religions? How do they relate to God? Can sincere people in other religions be saved? And, and what's the Christian perspective on this? Let me, let me give you how those answers have fallen out in a couple of different ways. Here's the first one, pluralism. So I'm just giving you these terms, but here's the idea. Pluralism is that there are many paths. So this is the theory that there are many paths to God. There are many expressions of truth about uh, God or whatever God is to you. And several of them are equally valid ways of salvation. Okay, this is a seemingly a very popular one in the latter half of the 20th century and kind of our post-truth, post-modern um, times that we live in. There's no one standard of truth. Truth is kind of subjectivized. And so therefore, the various expressions of truth about God, there's lots of different ways to God. That's, that's pluralism. Here's the second one, inclusivism. Now, this theory is, states that God saves people only on the merits of Christ, which would sound, sound biblical. God only saves people just based on the work of Christ alone. However, not all who are saved have to consciously know of Jesus or hear the gospel. So in other words, God will save those, although they have not heard of Jesus, based on how they respond to the best of the knowledge that they've been given. The best of the revelation that God has given to them. So they would acknowledge that Jesus is really kind of the mediator for salvation, but um, he's kind of the unseen funnel, you know, behind which, you know, maybe if you practice Hinduism genuinely and you kind of do so, then Jesus is kind of behind that Hinduism. Or you practice Islam genuinely, Jesus is kind of behind that. That's inclusivism. And here's the last one, the third one, exclusivism, which is the, the theory that argues that salvation is found only in and through Jesus Christ to the exclusion of all other religions and beliefs. Exclusivism generally makes the case that Christ must be believed upon, believed upon explicitly and explicitly confessed. Now, I think if I could give you my opinions on some of this, based on what the whole of the scriptures teach, I think one should be rejected because there could be countless mediators or none at all. Right? None at all. If, you, if it's, if it's a, a true pluralism, why do I even need a mediator? If it's just me and my truth. The second one should be rejected because it still makes Jesus one of many mediators. It gets to kind of the issue of uh, the, the Catholics argue that there's well, there's just one mediator, but there's other mediators to Jesus. And that would be the same thing that's happening here in the inclusivism side. Still, you still have more than one mediator. 
And the, the word there in verse 5 is one. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. So the best option is the third one. Jesus alone is the mediator. There is one mediator between God and man. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You come to Jesus in order to come to the Father. So, and it's important here when we're talking about Christ being the one and only mediator. This is a very important thing to keep in mind. That Jesus is not an independent third party. I've heard presentations about Christ being the mediator, but they, 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 I've heard presentations about Christ being a mediator that presents him in such a way that Jesus is kind of like interrupting the two sides. He's an independent third party that kind of comes in and is trying to, you know, recognize where they are wrong and recognizing where God is wrong and then trying to solve the problem. That's not a really good biblical picture about Jesus Christ acting as a mediator between God and man. First of all, to do so would actually be to break up the Trinity. Here you have one person of the Godhead at odds with another person of the Godhead. Or as I like how R.C. Sproul put this, Christ did not initiate reconciliation in an attempt to persuade the Father to put aside his wrath. Rather, in the eternal counsel of the Godhead, there was complete agreement between the Father and the Son that the Son should come as our mediator. This is very important. Because some presentations of Jesus as a mediator act as if he is... An independent third party. And this is not how we are to understand the work of Christ. First of all, as we saw through John's gospel, Jesus was sent by the Father. How many times, you guys? The Father sent me. I have come to do the will of him who sent me. I have come to accomplish the work of him who has sent me. And it culminates in John chapter 17, this high priestly prayer. Think about this. Okay. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The mediatorial work of Christ was a job given to him by the Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The work of Jesus as the mediator is a part of the plan of God's redemption before creation. 
uh, the glory that I had with you before the world even existed. And that is the context in which the mission of Jesus is given. The plan existed in the perfect relationship to the Trinity. So we must not think of Jesus as a mediator coming in between two squabbling groups and trying to break them up as an independent third party. No, he's sent by the Father at the initiation of all three persons of the Trinity. Indeed, our confession puts it this way. It pleased God and his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man. How is Christ the mediator? It's based on that covenant that they made before the foundation of the world. And then it goes on to talk about his role as mediator. And it encompasses all of those offices, the mediatorial offices that we saw in the Old Testament. The prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So the question, who is the, re- who, who is the redeemer? Well, Jesus Christ. But it's, it's more than that, right? It's only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ who comes at the initiation of the Father to do that work. How does Jesus mediate? Well, first, in his carnation, incarnation. Let's do this. Incarnation. Notice the end of verse 5. The man, Jesus Christ. Now, I remember having debates with some people that would have tended toward progressive Christian views or um, that would say, ah, see, here's another verse or maybe even some other religions that that denied Jesus as as being fully God and fully man and say they would point to verses like this. Ah, the man, Jesus Christ. See, here's a verse. The scripture is calling Jesus a man. Okay. And they would take this as a denial of his deity. No, this is not a denial of his deity. We could see elsewhere all through, just even this book alone, even at the very beginning of this book we saw, our God and Savior, God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope. There, there, there's a connection. There's, there's, the deity of Christ is affirmed everywhere in the scriptures. So what is this saying? This is not a, a denial uh, of his deity, Rather, it's an affirmation of the necessity of his humanity. Again, let me read from our confessional, the confessional statement, the Second London Baptist Confession. Notice how you have to have the fully, Jesus is fully God and fully man. I think that's what behind what Paul is saying here. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. The, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took on human nature. And yet he did so without sinning like other humans, all other humans do. 
being conceived by the, by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and, according, and David according to the scriptures so that two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. This is not a, a denial of his deity. It's an affirmation of the necessity of his humanity. For God to have a mediator between he and mankind, he needed to have one that represented both. Or the writer Hebrews said, since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Goes on to say, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. This is the essential part of this, why the incarnation of, of the Son of God in human nature, in the person of Jesus Christ, is so important, especially to his mediatorial role. So that's the first one. How does Jesus mediate? First, by his incarnation. Second, by his crucifixion, crucifixion and death. Notice the, second, uh, the beginning of verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony at the proper time. Gave himself. I've seen this scripture verse uh, a lot. Or this, this, these scripture verses a lot in the last, um, this last week. Galatians chapter 3. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. This is, this is technical language for the offering of Christ himself to die in our place. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Paul says again in Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or Ephesians. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And this is why I was thinking about it much this week. I was preaching at the wedding this passage, Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then there's the second part to this, this crucifixion and death of Jesus. This technical language of giving himself up, offering himself willingly to die on a cross, and that his death is now... Uh, a ransom 
for all. Notice that verse 6 there, it says ransom. The term there could mean either ransom as involving a payment, and this is why there's been some kind of crazy views that the, what Christ was dying was paying a payment to Satan or something like that. It can mean that, or it can mean like a redemption, as in the, the, the sense that of deliverance from like the people of Israel out of their bondage of Egypt in Exodus. I think that both here and elsewhere in the scriptures that this is referring to the latter. It's referring to the redemption, the redeeming of a people for himself as a, as a ransom for all. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So these first, uh, these first two things that Paul lists here point to what John Stott referred to as the double uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Two unique features which qualify him and him alone to be the mediator. Here's the first uniqueness, ready? The first uniqueness of Jesus Christ is his divine human person, and the second uniqueness is his substitutionary redeeming death. Indeed, the first two are necessary, are a necessary part of the work Christ does as mediator, but they are completed aspects of his mediation that prepare for uh, a present third act of mediation, which is his re resurrection, ascension, and session. Like Hebrews said, we have a great high priest who has gone past through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus says, passed through the heavens. Again, John Stott. I like the way he put this. He says there's three nouns you need to keep in mind here in these verses. The man, the ransom, and the mediator. Historically, they refer to three major events of, the, of Christ's saving career. One, his birth, by which he became a man. Two, his death, in which he gave himself as a ransom. And three, his exaltation by resurrection and ascension to the Father's hand, right hand, where he acts as our mediator today. Again, continuing with John Stott. Theologically, they refer to three great doctrines of salvation. The incarnation, the atonement, and his heavenly mediation. And since in no other person but Jesus of Nazareth has God first become man, taking our humanity to himself, and then given himself as a ransom, taking our sin upon, and guilt upon himself. Therefore, he is the only mediator. There is no other. No one else possesses. No one else ever has possessed the necessary qualifications to mediate between God and sinners. This is... This is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Again, back to the Second London Confession. And this will be our closing meditation before we take the Lord's Supper together. This office, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and remained in the state of dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given him. Amen? There is one mediator between God and man. Now we get to go and take the Lord's Supper together, which the Lord Jesus himself said that when we take this bread and drink this cup, we're proclaiming his death. He himself said that this bread is my body. This cup is my blood of the new covenant. When we are taking it, as we saw many weeks ago, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are communing with the, with the Christ who is seated in heaven now, interceding for us by his spirit. This is a means of grace given to us and that even now, as Jesus has accomplished these works of mediation for us, he is even now mediating with us from the Father and we can now be united to him by coming to this table. So friends, I invite you to come to this table to take of the supper of the Lord. This is for believers in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Christ, have confessed that you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that you are indeed saved, you can come to this table. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, no shame to stay in your seats. But this meal is the meal that Jesus has given us to commune with our mediator. And so let's do so with joy and gratitude for this work of mediation he has done for us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what a feast and a treasure it is to, to read your word and to understand it. We thank you that your spirit is given to us that we can see and understand it and that we pray that it is applied to our lives that it works in us faith and trust in you and we're grateful for this supper that jesus has given us 
as a means of grace to nourish us in the truth of the gospel, in the work that Christ has done for us. And so we come with joy and gratitude, knowing that we are celebrating the work of Christ for us and being nourished by it. We ask your blessing upon this time, and it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen.